Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to open it with me to the Gospel of John. We return to our study of this gospel, a study that we began uh, just a few weeks ago. We finally made it through chapter 1 and are now starting chapter 2. And for the discerning Ascension congregate, you might recognize that we are returning to a passage that we looked at a few years ago. Nevertheless, I want you to turn to John chapter 2 with me. Maybe you're asking if we preached it or if you preached it a few years back, Nate, why return to the passage again this morning? Because I know all of you remember my sermon so well that you could probably tell me what I said in that last sermon. No, I'll give you three reasons why we're not skipping John 2, but we're returning to it even though we covered it years ago as a congregation. And that's not counting the fact that a lot of you are new and weren't here last time that we covered it. So three reasons. One, it's one of my favorite accounts of Jesus. And so I just didn't want to skip it. That's a selfish reason. That in and of itself is not sufficient. So number two, as we're working through this book, as we work through any book of the Bible, you know, the book fits together. It's cohesive. John didn't record everything that Jesus said. He didn't record everything that Jesus did. He strategically, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, recorded what he wanted to record. And so it all fits together, which is one of the joys of preaching verse after verse, chapter after chapter, is because it all fits together as a whole. And so I think it's important that we don't skip this scene at the very onset of Jesus's ministry because John intentionally put it here as part of the puzzle as he unfolds the life and the narrative of Jesus. And then the last reason why is because, brothers and sisters, the Word of God is alive, right? These are not just ancient words on an ancient page, What does the Word of God say about itself? That it is living and active and that the Holy Spirit uses it in the lives of His people. And so even if you were to remember everything I said about this passage years ago, you're in a different position now. You're in a different place now. And the Holy Spirit may be speaking something different to you today than He did years ago. So here's the deal. Those of you who have heard me work through this passage, you might hear some familiar things, but you will also learn some new things, as I always learn new things, as I rework and restudy a passage. So this morning we turn to John chapter 2. You can follow along on the screen behind me if you want. This is a wedding scene. For those of you not familiar with John chapter 2, Anne and I just attended a wedding of a dear friend a couple months ago or last month, and if there's one word that can describe weddings, it is the word joy. Very few people are unhappy at a wedding, or at least they hide it if they are. Joy is something that describes weddings, and I'm pretty sure that Jesus loved weddings too. It's one of the things I love about this passage is what it reveals about the heart of Christ. Of course, Jesus loved weddings from an entirely different angle. He loved weddings because he created marriage. And he did so with our joy in mind. He did so intending that our marriages would reflect, would proclaim his relationship with his people 
A picture that the Apostle Paul will flesh out in his writings. And so it shouldn't necessarily surprise us that Jesus very early in his ministry would be hanging out at a wedding. But he's not there to officiate. He's not there to confront any false teachers. He's there seemingly to just enjoy the celebration. Though we know that there's always more to what Jesus does. There's always intentionality to what Jesus does. Does His moves are purposeful ones. And so Jesus, as we're going to see, is there specifically to inaugurate His signs. Miracles, supernatural events that will attest to the fact of who He is, who John proclaimed Him to be in chapter 1. And I want you to notice that it's almost as if no one at this wedding matters. We don't know any names. We don't really know any specifics about the people other than Jesus. It's like all eyes focused on Jesus, the guest. So let's listen. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. It's our tradition here at Ascension for you to stand for the reading of God's Word out of honor for His Word. The passage is before you. Listen as I read John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some of it and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said, everyone serves good wine first when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I don't know how many of you happened to see one of the press conferences for the University of Oklahoma softball team came out recently, I think just last week or the week before, right before they won the national title. I think they had run, won the semifinals and they were about to play for the national championship, which then they did go ahead and do. I stumbled across it because I like sports and somehow I came across this press conference, at least a clip of this press conference. A reporter asked one of the girls, she says, How do you keep the joy during a long season with all the expectations and anxiety? One of the members of the team, a young woman by the name of Grace Lyons, replied with this, the only way that you can have a joy that doesn't fade away 
is from the Lord. And any other joy is actually happiness that comes from circumstances and outcomes. Joy from the Lord is the only thing that can keep you motivated in a good mindset, no matter the outcomes. Then one of her teammates, Alyssa Brito, responded and said, no matter the outcome, we have an eternity of joy with our Father, and I'm so excited about that. Wow. What an answer on a national stage to the pursuit of joy. Joy, something that our world is starving for, is striving for. A joy that can sustain and strengthen no matter what life throws at us. That's what we're after. And that's the kind of joy that the gospel proclaims is only found in Jesus. That John proclaims is only found in Jesus. Two realities about joy that I want you to hear from this passage this morning as we work through it for the next few minutes. The first one is this. Jesus, the true master of the feast, has come to bring joy. Jesus, the true master of the feast, has come to bring joy. They say that the first impression is the most important, right? Well, here is Jesus' very first sign in his earthly ministry. This is his introduction to the world, and we wonder, how will he begin to validate what others have said about him? How will he establish his authority? How will he proclaim his intentions while he is here on earth? Will he heal someone of the evil of leprosy? Will he cast out a demon? Will he walk on water? Will he raise someone from the dead? No. (laughs) Right out of the gate, Jesus decides to make some wine. Just like we've seen in other places in the Bible, this is not the way you would start things if you were making it up. But remember, here we are in the first week of Jesus' earthly ministry. Talked about this a couple times in chapter 1. The designation of day has been a significant one the past couple weeks. The next day, the next day, the next day. Well, now here, do you notice where we are? John says, we come to the third day, which is two days after the last day. Do you know what makes this day? It makes it day six. Day six. Now, we've been connected since the very first words of this gospel. We've been connected to Genesis the entire chapter, right? Remember how we started off the book? In the beginning. And now here we are in day six with the echoes of Genesis already ringing in our mind. The final day of creation. The day when the first marriage ever was created. And Jesus, the Creator, has come to Cana to a wedding to recreate. You see, this is a significant start to His ministry. Weddings today are big occasions, expensive occasions. Weddings back then, even bigger. Huge, regional events. 
huge communal festivals. And at the center of the feast was the wine. To run out of wine is a terrible embarrassment to the host, especially to the master of the banquet. It happens here at this wedding. And so what does Jesus do? I mean, surely there are more important concerns for the Son of God than to avoid a little embarrassment at a wedding that he's attending. But out of compassion and kindness, embracing the joy of the moment in the midst of common people in a very small town, Jesus brings joy. He performs this quiet, extravagant miracle. No touching, no speaking, no mixing. He just speaks water into wine. He divinely invades the physical reality, enters into our ordinary, and makes something that wasn't something that is. And in doing so, Jesus essentially becomes the master of the feast. The one who holds it all together. More than that, though, he has become the the manipulator of molecules. (laughs) the creator who recreates. I want you to notice just a couple things about this miracle and, and subsequently about the heart of Jesus. First, just notice his quiet kindness. It's loud and clear to us sitting here as we read of this first sign, as John records this sign of his glory. But to the members of that party, to those who were gathering there, they didn't see this. They didn't know about it. Only a handful of people knew what had happened. Sure, they would find out later. The news would travel fast. But Jesus begins his ministry much like he entered the world, right? Quiet, unassuming. And yet to those who witnessed it, it was unforgettable. But then also just notice the extravagant grace as Jesus becomes the master of the feast and brings joy If there's any doubt that Jesus brought joy, one needs to only check out the wine, right? John makes a point of going into detail about the wine. Six jars, approximately holding 17 to 25 gallons of water, filled to the top. We're talking about 100 to 150 gallons of wine, and not just wine, good wine. Not just good wine, but the best wine. This was extravagant, what Jesus did. And yet it showed His incomparable power as the Messiah, the promised one, the one who is not only sent from God, but who is God. And it also showed His compassionate desire to make sure everyone is filled with joy. Jesus is the Lord of the feast. And so the first takeaway for us, brothers and sisters, is to recognize that His gifts are good, His promises are true, His grace is extravagant. And he desires that all people would enjoy life in him according to his design, recognizing his glory. You see, far from being a killjoy, Jesus reminds us of the sweetness of life. Now that doesn't make everything okay. It doesn't mean that we never experience suffering or hardship in life, but it does mean 
that our happiness, our joy, is not dependent upon our circumstances. But this miracle is more than about revealing the heart of the Savior. There's another truth that I want us to see about revealing His mission, a mission that involved death. So not only is Jesus the true master of the feast, but Jesus is the true bridegroom who has come to bring joy for eternity. That's really what this sign is about. Because we ask, what about this sign? I mean, why here? Why a wedding? Why wine? We can't miss what Jesus is doing and its place in the redemptive story in the unfolding of God's grace. In God's plan to redeem and restore a creation which has been marred by sin. It begins when we think to how John began the gospel. In the beginning was the Word. John begins with this allusion to the first words of creation, the first words of the Scriptures. And now here we are, Jesus is recreating, not just through His speech, but through the giving of Himself. I want to call to your attention just a couple things about this account to kind of flesh this out. First, let's talk about his interaction with his mother, right? When we first read this, Mary recognizes the need. She knows who her son is. She presumes that he can help. We cheer her request, right? Getting Jesus involved. That is until Jesus responds to his mother with the word, woman, And we're kind of taken aback, aren't we? In our modern day, to our modern ears, that sounds unacceptable, and indeed it is in our modern day. But that's not what Jesus was communicating. Jesus was not communicating disrespect. This was actually akin to ma'am or lady. That might be our modern day equivalent. So Jesus is not disrespecting his mother. He respects her highly. But he is distancing his mother. Now what do I mean by that? Jesus' words begin to convey to her and to all those around her that they must shift. She must shift and transition from thinking of him as her son to trusting in Him as her Lord. One thinks back to the 12-year-old Jesus in the temple who said, did you not know that I would be in my Father's house? Remember that interaction with Joseph and Mary? As Jesus goes on, He makes another bold statement. What does this have to do with me? Again, he distances himself from any human advice, any human agenda. Why? Because Jesus had an agenda of his own. Jesus had come to do the will of the Father. He had come to be the Savior and Lord. Yes, to bring joy to a party, but more than that, to bring eternal joy. And how is he going to do that? Through his death. And so he continues and says this phrase, My hour has not yet come. What does that mean? Well, the the rest of John's gospel is going to flesh this out. 
John 7, 30. It says that the Jews sought to arrest Jesus, but they could not. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. They sought to arrest him in order to kill him, but it wasn't time. Happens again in chapter 8, verse 20. He says his hour has not come. In John 12, Jesus says his hour has not come. And then goes on to say how the Son of Man must be lifted up. And then in John 17, Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. You see, it's clear from John's Gospel that when Jesus says the hour has not yet come, He means that the time for Him to die has not yet come. Jesus came with an agenda to do the will of God the Father. And what was that will? To die on the cross for sinners like you and me. And here at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, He knows that day is coming. He sees the bride and He maybe thinks about all the people that He has come to redeem. You and I. The bride of Christ, as the Scriptures calls the people of God. He sees the bridegroom at this wedding and He sees the sacrifice that He will make as the bridegroom for His people He thinks about the wine that he just spoke into existence. And he sees the blood that he will need to shed on the cross. You see, his words point to that day. That day that we all gather to celebrate and recognize. That day that brings eternal joy to our lives. But there's one more pointer. And it's the jars. What were the jars used for? Well, John makes a point of telling us the jars were used for the Jewish rites of purification. In other words, the old covenant cleansing with water has been replaced by the work of the Savior and the wine of gladness. What a great picture. Tying in so much of this imagery. The mere cleansing with water was not enough, but the wine of the Son which points to His death has come. Jesus shows us that He came to be the bridegroom, to bring eternal joy through His death. What a great passage. What a great event. We all want joy, don't we? We all want joy. I stand before you to proclaim, to remind you that Jesus is the solution. Those Oklahoma, University of Oklahoma players, they they nailed it. They preached it. There is one foundation of, there is one fountain of joy, true joy, joy invincible, because the master of the feast has come. The bridegroom has come and is coming again. So what I remind you of, brothers and sisters, this morning is to rejoice and to rest in the joy that Jesus brings. Let's pray together. Great Father in heaven, I thank you for this wonderful scene, this wonderful celebration that John records for us of our Savior. Father, we see the character and the heart of Jesus. We see His kindness 
We see his willingness to be extravagant, to go above and beyond. But most of all, we see and are reminded of the fact that his coming and his dying and his rising again from the dead was no mistake, but it was all part of your plan, all part of your wonderful design and wisdom to set apart and to save a people for yourself. We sit this morning as those people for whom he came. And we thank you. And we praise you for so great a salvation. And may we go from this place, not only with that joy providing for us an anchor for our souls, but that joy providing a foundation for whatever circumstances we walk in, that we might be able to walk in supernatural, otherworldly joy before a watching world. That all might come to know, that all might come to see and believe this One whom You have sent. O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we love You. And we thank You for loving us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.